3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is the 22nd of October, and this is Priya speaking to you right now, and with me is Carly. Hey, Carly, how's it going? Hey, Priya. Oh, look, we were talking just before the show, like... Rosie, our producer, yourself, me, growing up in Minjin, Brisbane, we're all super disappointed, you know, about the Lions' performance on the weekend, but we're going to get through it. Yeah, but, I mean, Lockie Neal got the brown low, so, I mean, I, he had a massive season. I'm very proud of him. Um, anyway, uh, next year, right? There's always next year. Um, and we can watch the, I guess, lackluster grand final this weekend. <laughs> and for listeners just tuning in, you're listening to Sports A. No, you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And yes, we're talking current affairs as always. So Priya, um, up first, I guess we'll go with my interview, <laughs> um, which is with Marisol. So Marisol Salinas is a host on 3CR's Mujeres Latino Americanas show. And she joined me to speak about Mapuche political prisoners, Mapuche resistance and the upcoming referendum in Chile. And actually, since this interview, um, protests have sparked in Chile and protesters have set two churches alight, including San Francisco de Borja, which is regularly used by Carabineros police force. I highly recommend people looking that video up online because it is spectacular to watch that glowing red steeple topple. Um, Not something that you see every day. So next up, we'll listen to uh, some poetry by Eileen Chong. Eileen is a poet based in Sydney and the author of eight books, the latest being Rainforest, which is a collection of 52 poems and was published in 2018 by Pitt Street Poetry. Eileen's work was shortlisted for many prizes, including twice for the Prime Minister's Literary Awards. Her next book, A Thousand Crimson Blooms, will be published by the University of Queensland Press in April 2021. Today, she's going to read us a selection of four poems, three shorter poems from her forthcoming book, and one longer poem in five parts from Rainforest. And then lastly, Dr. Monique Mann and Dr. Jake Goldenfine join Shahrazad to discuss facial recognition and regulating biometrics in so-called Australia. Monique is a senior lecturer in criminology and member of the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation at Deakin University. Monique's socio-legal research concentrates on the intersecting topics of algorithmic justice, police technology, surveillance and transnational online policing. Jake Goldenfein is a law and technology scholar based at Melbourne Law School, where he teaches digital platform regulation. He is also an investigator at the Australian Research Council-funded Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision-Making and Society. 
So, yeah, definitely can't wait to listen to that conversation. Yeah, Shahrazad was very, very excited about doing that interview. Uh, now, we, before we go to the news, um, I just wanted to quickly um, bring your attention to a really important issue that I think is not getting a huge amount of media coverage. Um, so this is in relation to the war that's currently going on in the region of Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh, which um, is a region that is inhabited by ethnic Armenians um, but is internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan. And so the conflict is between Armenia and Azerbaijan in this region. Um, Armenia, you know, not having very much international backing or support, um, Azerbaijan being backed at the moment by Turkey and being supplied with weapons by Israel. Um, this is really concerning. Um, a lot of Armenians and the Armenian diaspora as well are raising a lot of, uh, a lot of noise about this. Um, talking about, you know, the connection that this has to people's uh, memories of the 1915-1916 Armenian genocide. And, um, yeah, this, you know, has been something that's kind of flown under the radar of a lot of um, mainstream media. Um, you know, it's, it's starting to pick up, getting some attention. But I wanted to draw listeners' attention to that just briefly um, and let people know that if you want to find out more about this, you can go to Help Armenians dot c-a-r-r-d dot c-o and you can also visit uh, bit dot l-y forward slash a-r-t-s-a-k-h dash solidarity to both find out more information about what's going on in the region some of the geopolitical interests there um, but also what you can do to help and also amplify um, information about this um, serious issue and um just for some contemporary sort of reference, uh, this conflict has been going on since the end of September, this escalated conflict. And um, on Sunday, there was a new ceasefire, which was uh, violated by Azerbaijan within a couple of hours. So definitely a really live issue. And I encourage people to have a look and learn a bit more about that. But now we'll go to the news with Kate Kelly. Good morning, I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. Rio Tinto executives have told the inquiry into the destruction of Junkan Gorge that it was a poor decision to not present traditional owners with all the options to expand their Brockman mine site in WA's Pilbara region. So Rio Tinto has admitted to a Senate inquiry into the destruction of the ancient rock shelters that it missed opportunities to discuss the significance of the site with traditional owners. Rio Tinto previously told the inquiry it had four options to expand its Brockman mine in WA's Pilbara region, three of which would not have destroyed the 46,000-year-old rock shelters. Instead, the company chose a fourth option which saw the culturally significant caves destroyed. This week, the traditional owners told the inquiry they were not presented with any of the three options. So representatives from Rio Tinto said it was not clear who made the ultimate decision to blow up the rock shelters. The inquiry heard that another senior executive, who was also stepping down from Rio Tinto at the end of the year, had never visited the Brockman mine in WA despite being the person in charge for heritage matters. 
and the inquiry has the inquiry has previously heard evidence pertaining to gag clauses that prevent traditional owners from speaking publicly about cultural heritage concerns. So such clauses actually restrained the traditional owners from speaking out against Rio Tinto's mining operations, the inquiry has heard. A little closer to home, about 420 Victorian Centrelink call centre staff have been sacked. In a move, the federal opposition has called a disgraceful attack on workers administering the nation's safety net amid a deep recession. So workers at suburban call centres in Dandenong and Mill Park were informed on Tuesday by 2 billion British public service provider Serco that their employment would end on October 30. So the SAC staff will not receive separation payments or redundancies because they are employed on a casual basis, despite many being on staff for more than two years. A significant proportion of the laid-off cohort work regular full-time hours but remain on casual contracts, according to Australian Services Union, which represents some of the workforce. A Serco spokesman said the decision to sack the workers was taken because Government Agency Services Australia amended its contract with Serco to reduce the types of work it carried out. Labor's Government Services spokesman Bill Shorten said the Morrison Government and Government Services Minister Stuart Robert needed to explain why Services Australia is throwing more than 400 Victorians to the back of the unemployment queues. In a meeting with ASU officials on Tuesday, Serco said it hoped to maintain contact with the workers and explore whether some of them could be redeployed. The union said it would urge the company to redeploy the workers at call centres. Serco operates for other government agencies, including the Australian Taxation Office and the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And in Northcote, the return of golf on Wednesday will tee off a larger debate in the area because locals have been using their course as a picnic ground during lockdown. So residents um, had cut the wire fence to access the rolling green space when Stage 4 lockdown rules began in August, which prompted the City of Darabin Council to unlock the public golf course while golf was banned. So now that sport has been allowed to resume, some are reluctant to get um, to let go of the newly acquired green space. And local golfers have splintered into two groups in response, those who believe the 24 hectares can be shared and those who think any change would undermine the nine-hole course. So Bill Jennings, who launched the We Play Golf at Northcote, Northcote website, believes sharing the course is a slippery slope towards closing it to golfers. He told The Age that the public course was one of the few affordable ways for new and diverse players to discover golf. Melbourne residents are still barred from um, congregating in homes or hospitality venues until at least November um, 2. And so they've said that the um, many locals have said that the vision for space doesn't include golf at all. Um, but the best way forward is through broad consultation to find the best resolution for everyone, so all public uh, members can enjoy the area. And that's it for uh, Thursday's headlines. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Today I'm speaking with Marisol Salinas from the Mujeres Latino Americanist show on 3CR. 
Welcome, Marisol, to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thanks for this opportunity. Uh, so your show on 3CR, um, you generally talk about the news in South and Central America. And today you want to talk about your people, the Mapuche people and their struggles. And also um, there's a bit of an uprising happening in Chile at the moment. So it'd be great for listeners to understand what this referendum that's trying to change the constitution is all about. Well, Look, um, if we start talking about, you know, what's happening with my people, the Mapuche people, it's uh, something that has been for over 100 years, you know, that uh, we are in a conflict with the Chilean state, with the government. Uh, doesn't matter what kind of government um, we have in Chile, could be from the Democratic Christian Party, Socialist Party, you know, or right-wing party, but they all have the same politics if uh, it's about indigenous land. So with the Mapuche people, the conflict with the Chilean state is about, or, you know, multinational corporations moving into Mapuche indigenous people's land. In some areas, already some multinational corporations during the dictatorship um, in, uh, from 1973, they signed uh, long-time agreements, you know, where the indigenous land uh, has been occupied by multinational corporations who are, in this case, forestry companies. Uh, we have some hydroelectric companies, you know, mining companies. And, yeah, basically there is a contract between the Chilean government and these companies. And that means the displacement of uh, some of the communities who live in those areas, you know, plundering our land, you know, and, yeah, so the repression the, for those communities, for example, who are still in the land, living in those areas is not safe anymore. You have the police, you have the non-Indigenous people, you know, um, bullying Indigenous, you know, for example, when I talk about bully means if Indigenous, uh, they produce, for example, uh, the land, but there is no places where they can sell because the only people who can buy the products are Chilean people and they will pay less than half of what the Indigenous people invest, you know. But if you, mm. if you said no to whatever price they want to pay, you know, all your production is going to, you know, became bad and you are going to be unable to get at least the money that you invested. So most of the indigenous go to the street to sell, but when you go to the street to sell your product, you know, you have the police who come and, you know, take everything away from you and put you in jail. So it's, the situation is very difficult. Surviving is the main war. Um, they, they try in every way not to let indigenous people to survive or live as indigenous people. They want us to move into the Chilean world and live like them, you know, to become Chilean people, not to speak our language anymore, not to uh, live according to our culture, you know, so that, that that's what they push, you know, it's all from every different aspect. So also they use anti-terrorist law, you know, since the dictatorship, they create the anti-terrorist law part of the 80 constitution that was um, created by the dictator. 
by them. But now, and every government that we had before and the one we have right now, they use the anti-terrorist law just for Mapuche indigenous people. Why? Because we keep moving back into our land. You know, Mapuche means people of the land, yeah? Mapu, you know, land, share mm. people. So we cannot live without our land. So that's why they displace us, but the community go back, you know, into the land. So that's when the police, that's when the military get involved, representing the Chilean state as a way to, you know, end the, again, you know, push us out of the land again. But what they normally do, because they can use the anti-terrorist law, they can accuse us, you know, that our actions go against the Chilean development, so we are terrorists. So that means they can put our leaders in jail. They can keep the leaders, you know, up to 12, 12 months if it's needed without any proof because that the anti-terrorist law or the internal, you know, law of the state, because now they changed the name, but it's the same law. You know, they allow to keep you nearly 12 months without having to charge you because that's what the anti-terrorist law is about, you building the case and trying to get proof you know, that you are responsible for whatever is the accusation. But most of the time, you know, before the 12 months, you know, you are released from jail with no, no an apology, but just saying, oh, sorry, you are innocent. So we have a lot of different situations. We have other uh, indigenous who are accused of to initiate a fire, whatever fire is in the region, in the area, Mapuche people did. You know, there is a, a truck who, you know, was burned, Mapuche people did, you know, so it's all that uh, prosecution, you know, all that situation that we had to face just because we want to live in our land. It's a, it's a terrible situation, believe me, that um, for over 100 years, as I said to you, we have been dealing with. We are very strong people. We keep fighting. We will continue moving back into our land. I don't think that no one government from Chile will stop indigenous people wanting to move back into their land. So why I mix this with the uprising? Because on the 18th of October, uh, 2019, when the Chilean people, you know, decide to stand up against injustice, against all the wrong things that they are happening in Chile, you know, they realize you know, how the police was repressing them, the way the police was treating them when they were in the street, you know, protesting. And they, that wake them up about the Mapuche conflict. They managed to understand, you know, that during all the previous year when they, they, they could see in the news, oh, Mapuche, you know, did this, or they organized a protest and the police has to go and protect the other civilians, yeah? They realized that all that were false news, that all fabricated, you know, just as a way to show the Chilean population how bad are indigenous people, yeah? But now when they decide to go to the street, they start doing the same thing to them. So they realize that, oh, wow, it, it wasn't the way I saw it was. Now I understand how indigenous people have been dealing with the way, you know, the government treat them every time they, they are fighting for for something that is fair and right. So also during the uprising, uh, Chilean people decide to start 
you know, using our flag. The Mapuche flag was the one you could see everywhere. When there were millions in the street, you could see the Mapuche flag. Why? Because we have been fighting. You know, we are unstoppable. Fighting for going back to our land. Those ones who are still living in the little piece of land, you know, that the previous Chilean government allowed them to live, protecting that land where they are right now. So it's a, like an example, I will say so, you know, like uh, the Chilean people try to take from the history of the Mapuche people the strength, yeah, that we have as a people, as a nation, you know, to fight for, for the right thing. So Chilean people in jail, you know, most of them young people who we have at the moment over 2,500 people in jail part of their pricing. Mm. But unfortunately, because of the pandemic, you know, a lot of people worry about the pandemic. They forgot all about these people who are still in jail. No matter with the pandemic, you know, the Chilean jail has nothing to do with the jails here. We cannot compare, you know, the, the way jails are and the facilities and, you know, what people have here in Australia. In Chile, in the Chilean jail, your family has to bring you what you need, like soap, everything, because they, the Chilean state doesn't give you anything during the time you are in the jail. So it's your family who has to provide you the basics that you need during the time you are going to be in jail. So it's a totally different way of, you know, being detained, in this case, innocent people, innocent people who were fighting for the right thing, you know, they have been in jail. Most of them young people. We also have all the young people who lose their eyes, you know, during their pricing. For whatever reason, you know, the the police were, you know, shooting bullets, you know, the rubber bullets to the young people, to their faces. Mm. And in more than 300 cases, you know, it went into young people. More than in 400 cases went into the young people's eyes. So we have mm. over 200 young people they lost the vision completely, but there is others who just in one eye. We have a lot of, you know, during the pricing, the, the, the police took advantage of this situation and they sexually assault a lot of young females and males, you know, during the time they were in jail or when they were detained. So disgusting, you know, what happened during the pricing in Chile. Mm-hmm. And thanks to that, thanks to that, Today, the Chilean people has a referendum that is mm. going to happen on, you know, soon uh, during this month. And yeah. the idea of the, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible, you know, how people forgot about that because they are in jail at the moment. But mm. they are in the, the, the idea of, yes, we are going to be able to change the, you know, Pinochet 80 constitution, who is a criminal constitution. It's not good for the majority of the Chilean. Mm. And for listeners, yeah, the the uprising that you're talking about started in October last year, and so now it's been a year. Yeah. Exactly. It's going to be a year on the 18th of October, very soon. So um, we are expecting big manifestations. You know, I know there is pandemic, but we are expecting that people will commemorate in Chile on the 18th of October, you know, one year of, you know, since the uprising. 
And we and other people around the world, we are trying to highlight, you know, and denounce that all these people who are in jail for no reason, believe me, a lot of them were detained because they were leading the rally. So they, there is no really accusations against them except, you know, that they were mobilizing people. But again, the, the, the pandemic, when, you know, go in the way, and people became so scared of, uh, of you know, getting sick that people stopped, you know, um, somehow, you know, protesting or defending those ones who were jailed in, you know, in, in a very uh, wrong way. Mm. So, yeah, so that's why we are... We are expecting, you know, to to have again mobilization, but also a, a, a lot of um, denouncing coming from Chileans or non-Chileans who are overseas, you know, about this, you know, about the, the political prisoners because they are political prisoners, you know, Chileans and Mapuche, you know, who at the moment are in jail in Santiago, but also in the south of Chile, so. And, yeah, see how we can support from here. Because, again, they need money to pay lawyers, you know, and because the, in Chile we don't have a central link or a welfare system where you have central link payments, doesn't exist. So people who are in jail, they don't get paid because we don't have money to pay no one. So that's what I said to you before, that family need to take the responsibility to to bring every week, you know, to the jail, soap, whatever they need, and that includes mm. also food, toilet paper, you know, all the basic. So it's a totally different situation. So it's people who have no money at all, and if many of them are, you know, they have a family, you know, a wife and children. So if he's not working, not just because they're in jail, also because of the pandemic, so we are uh, facing, um, they are facing a very difficult time. So that's why we want to continue from here to support. We call it Oya Comunes. Ollas Comunes is like a communal kitchen or a kitchen, you know, where you cook in a big pot for everyone who needs it. Mm-hmm. And uh, normally there is all these Ollas Comunes are in all the different suburbs. So that means there is one in each suburb. You know, people every night, they get together. So during the day, they walk around, you know, the suburb, asking, you know, knocking the door and asking one by one house, whatever they have, you know, they come and they said, look, today we are going to cook spaghetti. Do you have anything that can help us for the food? You know, some people get some tomatoes, other people, you know, the, the spaghetti. So they, they collect, you know, what they need. And after whatever they manage to collect is what they cook, you know, during the evening for those one who don't have money to feed themselves. And we, there is families, you know, going into this uh, morning uh, breakfast, you know, midday lunch and dinner, you know, that is uh, cooking the street. All these are done in the street. So it's a, it's a very difficult situation, you know. Um, it's good that there is a referendum to change the Chilean constitution, but also, again, the referendum has been already um, 
taken over by the current political, you know, people who are in power. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is, you know, people in the referendum, they will have two options. One, they can vote for yes or no to the, to, to the um, change the constitution, you know, the Chilean constitution. But if you said, yes, I want to change the Chilean constitution that I think is going to be the big majority, I think that's going to win. You know, as a way to protect their seat, you know, there is uh, two options. One is uh, with the, you know, yes, to change the Chilean constitution, but you can say, um, I want a constituyente, or yes, you put away, yeah, yes, we change the constitution, but we want uh, a mixed a, a constituyente. So what do you mean mixed constituyente or constituent, you know, means that 50% of the current uh, senators or, you know, people who are in, in the government, in the parliament, 50% of those will remain in their seats. And they will open other 50% for new people to come and join. Yeah? If people vote yes, but also just constituent, constituent, no, no mix, means that Everyone who is at the moment in the government, you know, has to apply for their role, you know. So that means 100% of the positions will be elected. New people, all the people who are already, you know, senators or uh, MPs who are already, they can apply to keep their job. It doesn't mean they will keep it. Mm. See, so that's why we, what we are trying to do here. We are saying, yes, you need to say to the Chilean people, yes, to change the constitution, but also make sure you take constituyente, so that everyone has to go, and new people can come, so they can make real changes. You know, you don't need 50% of the people who are corrupted already in the government, you know, one after another, one after another for 30, 40 years, for them to stay there, to keep doing what they have been doing all these years. So there has to be new people, uh, people who represent, you know, all the different sectors, areas in the country, and that include, you know, LGTBI people, indigenous people, you know, all the, the areas that are missing, you know, since the independence of Chile. So, yes, it's... Um, it's, it's a situation happening at the moment in Chile, everywhere around the world, but I will say that, you know, the Chile, the, the 80 constitution that was created on, you know, and imposed by the dictator Pinochet since 1973 in Chile, is still in place. No one, no government at all has been trying to change it or take it out of the, you know, Chilean so that constitution allows privatization to everything. Chilean people doesn't have ownership in the water, electricity, nothing, nothing. Everything has been privatized thanks to this law. And that includes health, education, you know, superannuation, everything. Everything privatized. For example, Chilean people don't have the right to, to, to take uh, their superannuation if they need it in case of an emergency like we do here. In Australia, for example, I can take it if I need it. I need to prove the reason, of course. But it's my money, I can take it. 
in Chile, mm. no, because it's managed by the state. The Chilean yeah. also, you know, contract a private company for them to manage the Chilean people's money, and they invested whatever they want. They don't have to tell the Chilean people how and where that money is getting invested. Mm. But also that need to change, you know. That's what Chilean people also want to change it. Part of the pandemic, they managed to get 10%, you know, um, from their superannuation. The, the government allowed them to take 10%. That was um, probably a month ago. But it was good, you know, because it's, it's their money. People are having a bad time because of the pandemic. Of course they need to, you know, use some part of the money that they have been saving for years, you know, part of the job they do. So it's, um, mm. it's a lot happening, and we are hoping that things are going to change. I know that for indigenous people, in this case for Mapuche people, it's more difficult than Chilean because they want our land. You see, before they push us, during yeah. the invasion, they didn't want our land because too far, too cold, too many rivers, too too high, you know. Now they need them because we have the natural resources, we have the yeah. water, we have the minerals, you know. So now they, they want our land. And believe me, until we don't get a proper, you know, um, recognition that we are a nation, because we speak a different language. We don't speak Spanish. You know that Spanish is our second language. We have a totally different culture. We don't believe in the God, you know, that Chilean people believe as a Catholic, you know, that they are, most of them. We have different goddess, you know, we, yeah, we are different in that sense. Yes, but we are not trying to separate from the Chilean state, you know. What we are trying to do is to make sure they recognize that, yes, we are a nation, we have different beliefs, different culture, different language, and that we need to have an autonomy and self-determination to, to decide how to live our life, you know, and how to use our land. If we don't want to work the land because we have a connection with the land, you know, we are connected to the land in a very in a, a spiritual way, we don't see the land as, a, as some, something you can take profit or you can mm. make profit. Yeah. We we don't see it the way they see it, you know. So they need to start, you know, respecting indigenous people and the connection, you know, we have with the land. Mm. Um, yeah. And, yeah, hopefully people in Chile are seeing that now, especially with the strength of Mapuche people throughout that uprising. Um, and hopefully that is reflected, although <laughs> um, we all can also have our reservations about um, what changes to constitutions. Thank you so much, yeah, Marisol, yeah. <laughs> for no, joining us you, on, <laughs> yeah, on 3CR Thursday <laughs> Breakfast. No, thank you so much. And just then, you heard an interview that I had with Marisol Salinas, host on 3CR's Mujeres Latino Americanas show. And she joined me to speak about Mapuche political prisoners, Mapuche resistance, and the upcoming referendum in Chile. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Up next, we have our regular writing and poetry segment. So today, 
we're lucky enough to hear four poems by Eileen Chong. Eileen is a poet based in Sydney. She is the author of eight books, the latest being Rainforest, a collection of 52 poems published in 2018 by Pitt Street Poetry. Her work has been shortlisted for many prizes, including twice for the Prime Minister's Literary Awards. Her next book, A Thousand Crimson Blooms, will be published by the University of Queensland Press in April 2021. Today she reads a selection of four poems, three shorter poems from her forthcoming book, and one longer poem in five parts from Rainforest. And just a warning for listeners, the final poem contains some coarse language. The segment lasts about 10 minutes, so if this is not for you, you can tune back in then. Otherwise, here is Eileen Chong. My name is Eileen Chong, and I'm a poet and a writer based in Sydney, Australia. I was born in Singapore of Chinese descent, and I want to acknowledge that I live and work on unceded Gadigal land of the Euro Nation. This is Aboriginal land, always was and always will be. I have had eight books published and my ninth book, A Thousand Crimson Blooms, is forthcoming from the University of Queensland Press in April 2021. Today I'd like to read you four poems of mine. I hope you enjoy them. In my fortieth year, I realise I am not them. The moon rises above clouds. In the cold light, all is grey and white. Night sky turns on a paper wheel. Stars are silvered, immutable. The only sound, a deer scarer filling, emptying and filling again. My mother talks in numbers. What is home? Forty years of morning, noon, and night. Tell me about your childhood. Thirty-seven mouths open under a tin roof. What is happiness? Eighteen in my sailor suit, spray from the waterfall. Why did you marry? Five years of coins. How many tears? One thousand eight hundred and ninety-eight pearls. Did you love your mother? Two hands, ten fingers, six children. How many miles have you come? Sixty-four thousand and twenty-five gull wings. Do you love me? The rain falling, falling over thirteen thousand dawns. Gazal for my grandmother, for Yap Atru. I sing to you in the afternoons, grandmother. I see you wear the ring I gave you, grandmother. You have forgotten it was once mine. It fit my finger perfectly as it does yours, grandmother. I hand you a book of photographs and poems. You turned the pages restlessly. You never learned to read, Grandmother. When and why were these pictures taken? Exactly where are your memories hidden, Grandmother? 
The corridors are broken, the rooms are darkened, yet I look at you and I behold you, grandmother. On the shelf, in your Chinese dress and wavy hair, you cradled your young son, not yet a grandmother. This morning, when I was absent, you told the world I, little Belle, love you best. My heart is yours, Grandmother. Country 1. Sunburnt, red earth, waterhole, concentric camp rings, spears of rain. Here the snaking belly and dust prints of the lizard, rainbow, flint and opal. Six-pointed stars shine, then fade to white and blue sky, smoke like waves or fire. A man bends over, a woman leans back, paperback cradle, paired tracks of the kangaroo. I don't know this language, my music is wrong, nothing has been written down right. Mutable, without shade or anchor, land too wide to speak of. I cannot nest, I fly. 2. Eight hours on a plane, and this is what we get? Go back to your own country? Exactly what is that? Or a chink, for that matter? They hold signs and chant. We get back on the bus. Red brick walls of the prison, built by proud convicts. They drive us to the opal factory, tell us the myths and try to get our money. My mother buys two polished stones to set into earrings. I've read Shakespeare. I know opals are bad luck. Two half-naked Aboriginal men daubed with white paint are singing in the car park. I'm not allowed to stay and watch. They, too, are moved on. I roll a new word around my mouth. Didgeridoo. 3. The other day, when I was walking to the supermarket, a woman called out to me, Chinese cunt. I looked at Colin, our eyes wide with shock. Then the tears came. She meant it for both of us, he said. Yet I am the only one who wears this face. In Japan, they speak to me in Japanese. Korean people think I'm Korean. My Mandarin sounds Taiwanese. The Chinese ask me how I learned the national language. In Singapore, I am a quitter, a leaver. In Australia, a new arrival. There's so many of you here. You must feel at home. 4. Home, the shop house on Victoria Street, the HDB flat at Sims Drive, the apartment on Balestia Road, the condominium in Haugang, my university dormitory room, my first flat in Bukit Panjang, the tiny bedsit I found after the divorce, the Emerald Hill cohabitation, the Rental Federation House in Kensington, 
the five-bedroom eastern suburbs mansion with a library, the multi-million Potts Point apartment with harbour views, now my small flat with a garden and a strip of sky, two cats, my books, his records, our plates, pots and pans, framed poems on the walls, at night we light the lamps. Five. We drive out of Sydney to a coastal walk, one foot in front of the other, the track slopes uphill, breathe salt and humidity. Two girls in hijab pass us, later we see them posing for photographs by the cliffs, the ocean behind them, sandstone and sea, beach and bush, outcrop, island. You hear about walkers who stray and die of thirst or exposure. Always bring water. Leave enough time for the return journey. Watch the sun's path. You're on your own. This country cares for no one. And just then you heard a reading by Eileen Chong. Eileen is a poet based in Sydney and she was sharing four poems with us. Her new book, A Thousand Crimson Blooms, will be out next year with University of Queensland Press. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast and up next, a really exciting interview that Shahrazad did uh, on facial recognition and regulating biometrics in Australia. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855am. Facial recognition technology is increasingly being trialled and deployed around Australia. And Dr Monique Mann and Dr Jake Gordonfeen joined us to discuss facial recognition in Australia. So Monique is a senior lecturer in criminology and a member of the Alfred Deakin Institute at Deakin University. And Jake Gordonfeen is a law and technology scholar based at the Melbourne Law School. So good morning and welcome. Thank you for joining us. Good morning and thank you for having us. Thanks for having me on. Before we uh, speak more about biometric development in Australia, could you uh, sort of give uh, listeners an overview of biometric technology and facial recognition and how it works? So facial recognition technology um, involves basically the extraction of the information of the geometric distribution of one's facial features via an algorithm uh, and then that is used to produce what's known as a facial template. And so that facial template can be used uh, for a number of kind of applications. Um, so the, the ones that I guess are most important to differentiate is one-to-one matching or confirmation of identity. So essentially um, ensuring that you are who you say you are. So an example of that would be for when you front up at um, an e-smart gate at a border and present your passport and, you know, an image of your uh, face is taken to confirm that you are that person uh, in that passport image standing at that e-smart gate before immigration lets you through. The other application is known as one-to-many searching, uh, and that's 
in my view, where we see some of the more kind of problematic um, applications of facial recognition technology. And this involves the kind of searching of databases for uh, those via a facial template to identify unknown people. And so that could involve, you know, the searching of government databases. So, for example, driver's license databases. But it could also involve, uh, as we've seen through, for example, Clearview AI, the scraping of open source or social media data and then using that to identify unknown people. There's also other applications in terms of live tracking through public spaces, and we have seen that uh, in Australia through the use of um, CCTV, for example. And we've seen that rolled out um, in a number of different areas uh, by, for example, local governments in Perth, uh, a library in Ipswich in Queensland, and then also at Lang Park during the State of Origin in Queensland, and then also during the Commonwealth Games in Queensland as well. So I guess that's just kind of a 101 on how facial recognition uh, technology works, or at least the basics. Mm. I, I would um, add that uh, biometrics has a very long history, um, way back into the 19th century, as soon as uh, there were ways to effectively record physical features of individuals. Um, they developed new systems around sort of, yeah, uh, cataloging and indexing individuals. So biometrics became a tool to sort of reduce an image or a fingerprint into a set of numbers that could then be arranged, organized in a, effectively a filing cabinet such that you could retrieve that image without necessarily knowing a person's name, but by um, but by using the sequence of, of numbers as like a description of that image. So it became a way to sort of um, index physical features from the real world. Uh, as well as having that organizational function, biometrics has also this sort of uh, sad relationship with, you know, some of the disciplines that are now called, now, uh, lumped under the heading social Darwinism, sort of uh, physiometrics and physiognomy, uh, physio, yeah, physiognomy, um, that have a lot to do with sort of evaluating individuals by virtue of some of these biological features. Um, and uh, as much as those are now discredited scientists, a lot of um, Biometric work still sort of seeks to advance some of those goals through through technologies like uh, personality computation and just all sorts of behavioral analytics uh, that are tied to um, the use of neural networks now for for doing biometric analysis. So we see a lot of that in like hiring algorithms where individuals will submit a, like a video resume and a neural network will sort of um, evaluate their their uh, physical features, their behaviours to try and draw conclusions about what kind of person they are. Um, similarly, that you know, talking about borders, in borders we have these facial recognition gates, but there are also projects investigating how um, sort of a biometric evaluation can be used to detect whether a person is telling the truth or lying in interviews in borders. So... Um, these biometrics and, and really all tech, like all technologies of identification are about identifying who a person is, but also what kind of person they are. 
Um, and we know also, um, Monique, you mentioned Clearview AI just before, um, the Australian police reportedly trialed the technology earlier this year. And we know that the government is uh, planning to increase or share um, the sharing of citizen data across the public sector. And this also includes sharing information uh, gathered by uh, reputable private entities. <laughs> so I guess could you give us a bit of an overview, both of you, on what is going on in Australia and the concerns that it raises? So the, uh, I mean, as I said before, there's a history here um, and it really... I guess, well, at least aligned with when I first started to focus on a lot of this, um, was, I guess, the use of, I guess, these biometric technologies expanded following the terrorist attacks um, of 2001, uh, particularly given requirements from the International Civil Aviation Organization about machine-readable biometric passports. And so we saw very much at the at the borders and through various kind of um, migration laws um, re- requiring or authorizing for the collection of personal identifiers from non-citizens at the border, or even, for example, people who were caught fishing illegally in Australia's waters. Uh, and then with time, uh, that um, expanded to include all citizens. And so we saw that with um, the sort of legislative package concerning um, returning foreign fighters, actually. Um, so we've got that kind of connection with terrorism. In terms of the national facial uh, biometric matching capability, uh, this was first proposed uh, around about five years as, ago as well. And this initially was first kind of um, an agreement between states and territories um, sort of under the auspices of the, the COAG, um, um, Coalition of Australian Governments. Um, and initially there was really no uh, overarching or guiding legislative framework supporting this. So it was more in terms of interagency or interstate agreements to facilitate the sharing of, of driver's licences um, between the states and the federal government. So this was proposed because at that time, um, Immigration and Border Protection, uh, now under Home Affairs, uh, and Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade obviously have passport and visa images, um, application images, but there's only coverage of about 50% of the Australian population in terms of being able to extract facial templates from the passports or visa application images. So there was a really concerted attempt to access state-based driver's licence databases here in absence of any legislative framework. It wasn't then uh, and some time, actually, until at the federal level there was the introduction of the uh, Identity Matching Services um, uh, Bill to support, actually, this sharing of biometric information between the states and territories and the federal government. Uh, quite significantly, when this uh, proposed law came before the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security at the end of last year, or last year at some time, um, they knocked it back and said that uh, there are a lot of issues in terms of sort of inadequate privacy protections, um, insufficient oversight, a lot of scope for executive decisions to be made by the Minister of Home Affairs, um, 
And they knocked it back and said, basically, you need to go back to the to the drawing board and redraft the, the, the proposed legislation. It's not sufficient to amend it. We actually want to see a new draft. That hasn't as yet occurred. Um, we are, I guess, waiting with bated breath, and I certainly am, and I, I'm sure Jake is as well, to see what the revised uh, form of uh, or, or shape that that comes in. Uh, but when that is kind of reintroduced and in time passes as law, uh, that will provide the legislative framework in the Australian context for the sharing of driver's licences between the states and territories and the federal government. So I guess that's a, a bit of an overview there in terms of those sorts of developments. And Jake, do you want to add anything? I should say we should um, we should plug our, our report. So Monique and I have just published um, a report on the Australian Identity Matching Services Bill um, in a compendium of sort of case studies about international biometrics regulation that's been put out by AI Now, which is a sort of um, New York University-affiliated think tank. Um, and in it, we sort of describe this this history of the, the, the biometric um, capability and its sort of uh, culmination so far into the legislative proposals of, of the bill that were kind of an, a, a, a reversioning of what was originally a sort of um, a COAG agreement, a, 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 an intergovernmental agreement between the states. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the critical thing to, to, to take away is that um, there has generally been sort of agreement between police forces that they need better systems for information sharing. Um, and I think police departments, including police officers, are quite fond of technologies like facial recognition. For instance, we saw how happy they were to use Clearview AI, which by all accounts works relatively well and simply. Um, but the sort of federal ambition behind the project is perhaps a bit different because this is really an exercise in creating a, a, a gigantic centralised database of identity information that's controlled by the Department of Home Affairs, um, which is something we haven't really had before. You know, driver's licences have been uh, the remit of state authorities, their civic information. Um, all of a sudden we're talking about a federal database, so all these competencies that were state competencies are now feeding into this federal database that is used for a huge range of purposes, and, and this is because Home Affairs has a huge range of purposes. It deals with, you know, migration, it deals with uh, terrorism and, and, and counterterrorism, it deals with public safety and security, um, it deals with, uh, you know, road safety in certain respects, it, about um, the policing of protests. It's, it has its own border force that, uh, you know, walk the streets of cities, suggesting like this border is not really, you know, the, the geographic border that we imagine. It's, it's, it's a social border that's operating in, in, in all our civic spaces. And um, we're giving them really uh, this extremely powerful tool, which is these databases. Now, one of the things that we point out in our report is that when the, the states initially agreed in the intergovernmental agreement to sharing this information, it was sort of on the premise that um, the, the, the home affairs would operate 
the sort of facial recognition technology, but not control the databases and not really have access to the databases. It would just, they would just be centralized for the sake of technological efficiency, where what we see now in the proposed legislation is really that home affairs becomes a data aggregator and has access and control over everything. I would just also add, um, I mean, I, I don't think it's a, a good situation in which this is, a, this is occurring, but the introduction of a legal framework that's providing some degree of oversight and democratic accountability, I think, is a good thing, that there is a governing legal framework around the system. Um, if, you know, we, we, we can anticipate that the government is very invested both in sort of the technical and legal architecture that they've been building and institutional as well as you point out, Jake, around the Department of Home Affairs. Um, so I, I expect it will pass in time. Um, but there are alternatives that perhaps we could think about in terms of the role of facial recognition in society and maybe, maybe we shouldn't have that at all. And I think that's a kind of another question, uh, altogether. Uh, I would just also point out just a couple of additional things in the Australian context and how, and how perhaps this differs internationally is that in, in Australia we have no, um, sort of either like legislated or constitutional protection of human rights at the federal level. So we don't have a Bill of Rights, we don't have a Charter of Rights at the federal level. Some states and territories do, in particular Victoria, uh, Queensland and the ACT. Um, those charters haven't prevented uh, Victoria and Queensland from moving ahead to upload uh, drivers' licences images to the federal system, even without that federal legislative framework passing. However, in the recent days, we've actually seen the ACT express some reticence about doing so until the, the federal bill passes. Uh, so I think that's interesting as well, and I think it shows potentially the importance of um, or maybe the influence that state-based human rights protections could have uh, in, in, some, in some cases and some not, and I think maybe some comparative analysis around that is, is warranted. The other thing that I would just also mention in terms of some of the other recent developments we've seen even in the previous couple of weeks uh, has been the announcements for a big push of um, new identity, digital identity services, and the use of facial recognition in, in a range of contexts specifically welfare. So we see the Australian government announcing $250 million for um, new applications of facial recognition technology in welfare systems. And, and in my view, look, I find this really concerning. There's been other, like the Australian government does have a, a pretty poor track record of rolling out and using uh, new technologies in welfare contexts, essentially beta testing them on some of the most vulnerable kind of groups in society. Uh, we saw that certainly with things such as uh, the robo-debt scandal, the use of automated data matching to identify inverted commas um, debt to Centrelink that were a, a large proportion of them were actually found to be erroneous. Uh, and then we see these, these same kind of applications um, or similar applications of automated technologies um, specifically uh, in relation to facial recognition. Of course, also we see um, you know, applications, other welfare surveillance technologies such as the Indu card or, or cashless welfare card as well as another form of welfare surveillance. So there's, a, I guess, a trend here. Now, there are issues, I guess, in terms of, you know, these people not necessarily or people, welfare recipients, you know, not necessarily, you know, having a choice about whether or not they can or 
or don't use that technology in terms of accessing government systems of services in order to obtain welfare benefits. And it also brings up the issue of questions around, you know, error bias or, you know, what's been kind of termed the ban opticon, where new forms of surveillance technology ban people from accessing either crossing borders or other, um, you know, uh, functions or rights of citizenship. Um, and so, you know, there, there are real concerns uh, there as well. So in your co-authored report, you talked about the futility of Australian government uh, regulatory oversight, um, especially when privacy is pitted against security. And Monique, as you mentioned, 2001 was sort of like a a turning point where uh, security became more important than privacy in the so-called war on terror. So could you sort of talk more about that, uh, those key points in your report? The way that the... Australian legislation has been framed is as a a mechanism to deal with identity theft, right, which apparently costs our economy billions of dollars a year, uh, generates like tremendous harm for victims of, of, of identity theft, et cetera. And so a lot of, um, the political rhetoric around this is that this is a technology that is going to fix identity theft. And what we give up in exchange is just having our driver's license image hosted somewhere else, right? Or like you have the, you know, you have to enroll in a, in a, in a facial recognition system in order for us to get the benefits of identity theft. So it sort of becomes this issue of like one, one, one public good that we might call privacy versus another public good that we might call like identity security or whatever. But once you know, the, 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 the measurable impact of, um, identity theft becomes something, uh, very tangible. Whereas the measurable impact on individuals' privacy has always been very difficult to quantify in, in, in economic terms that really influence policymakers. And so, uh, we, we get put in this position where we have, oh, like, here's a, here's a really measurable financial impact on, on society that we're balancing against this sort of, uh, wishy-washy, intangible, um, sort of norm, norm, like, moral position that, um, we can't really, we can't really deal with on equivalent terms. And as soon as we set it, set up this binary, with respect to security or with respect to health, we, we, we take the value of security or the value of health or the value of identity um, security as given. And then we sort of like, there's, there's no way that any of these other non-quantifiable interests have an opportunity to, 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 to work in this debate. So we've kind of, as soon as we pitch it that way, we've kind of lost the battle. So coming back to your question about um, the futility of the regulatory oversight, we saw that this, this dynamic in process. We saw the importance of identity theft taken as a given. We saw the importance of national security taken as a given. And um, what became the work of the, the oversight was just to like, you know, nibble at the edges. Oh, okay, well, we're going to accept that we need to address these systems. This is an architecture that appears to do it. Uh, let's just make sure, like, you know, we, the, 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 the privacy implications don't go too far. So it's sort of like it's what you get is the ability, the oversight dealing with the most egregious privacy dimensions of the proposal, but effectively leaving 
the whole architecture that says we needed huge federalised, centralised national facial recognition system in place in order to prevent identity theft, that gets left in place. And so pitching it as privacy versus security actually becomes this huge distraction from what is the real political outcome of the project. Uh, I'd also just add on the point of this rationale of identity theft being taken as a given um, and, you know, really being put forward as the main kind of supporting rationale for the uh, identity matching program. I mean, we've seen this in a number of other uh, um, surveillance developments as well, and not, not necessarily identity theft per se. So, for example, arguments supporting the introduction of mandatory metadata retention legislation was around uh, terrorism, when we actually look at why metadata is being accessed by law enforcement, it's largely for the investigation of drug offences um, and also similarly with the introduction of um, new powers that attempt to undermine encryption in Australia, again under this rhetoric of terrorism, we actually, when we see what, why these powers are being exercised and the very limiting report, limited reporting that we do see, there's a real notable absence of actually any terrorism offences and it's largely telecommunications offences. So I, I think there's a, there's a track record of kind of using certain arguments to pass laws, uh, to pass invasive surveillance laws, when actually what they're being used for eventually is not the stated purpose supporting their initial introduction. So I'm a bit cynical about that as well. I mean, even in the even in the identity matching services bills, the secondary material around the bill, they say, like, identity theft is so terrible. And it's also, like, the precursor to organised crime. So, they, they you know, they just throw the, throw everything in. And then I've been reading Australian Institute of Criminology reports, which are about like public attitudes to uh, biometric technologies. And they're framed like, you know, how bad is identity theft? Um, wouldn't you rather not be the victim of identity theft by use, through use of this biometric technology? And, and I'm like, this is this is, you know, deceitful, really like purposely deceitful as well without actually explaining the sort of contours of what that could possibly mean, you know, because I think it sort of gets lost, you know, especially with the uh, pro proliferation of like social media and um, and how that's sort of embedded in sort of everyday life. As you were speaking, I'm sort of reminded of um, more authoritarian states using, for example, Facebook data or like asking Facebook to have access to people's profiles under the name of stopping terrorism or using that sort of like Western framework of, of terror. Um, and they're actually just uh, accessing uh, human right defenders, uh, Facebook accounts. Uh, so I guess, could you talk a bit more about this con in this more global context? And I guess the sort of increase of like public private partnerships or like thoughts on neoliberal authoritarianism expansion. I mean, in terms of, when people talk about these technologies in the authoritarian context, the the sort of example often brought up is China. This this move makes me a bit uncomfortable because um, the same technologies are at work across the world, and um, there you know if we want to think about it in this in a neoliberal context or one dimension of the of the neoliberal political environment where public services are privatized. I mean, this is uh, really a feature of how these technologies are being deployed. Um, around the world, 
primarily in the US. It's hard to sort of work out in Australia exactly who's building what and what the relationships are. Um, in the US, there's like a lot of it, a, attention and energy going into moratoriums about banning facial recognition. I think that there's um, a, a more structural dynamic that's happening where we have companies like Microsoft who don't really care that much about facial recognition. They sell facial recognition softwares, but it's not a huge earner for them. What the, where the money is, is selling, um, all the infrastructure up and down the, the data collection, storage, processing chain. So they make money by selling you, uh, like now, like the police car that has all the, um, the sensors on it and has the cameras on it and they sell you the storage for all of that data and they sell you the analytics for all of that data. And so these companies, um, that do facial recognition really become a, a, a are a platform for this whole host of profit generating um, services that that were once public services, and because uh, you know the the, the public service has been um, so disempowered over time and has lost you know and, and just like no longer has like the the intellectual or resources or the financial resources to really um, think about what they need and want these uh, big tech providers come in with a solution, you know, that fixes everything, uh, but costs a lot, um, and also imposes like their vision of what policing is, their vision of what welfare is. Um, and we see this, you know, with Microsoft, with Palantir, with Amazon, um, and also with health as well, because these companies now operating in the UK, the NHS system. And so, um, Focusing, you know, and this is another theme I like, I always come back to is like focusing on a single application, technology application like facial recognition can sometimes blind us to some of these more structural transformations that are happening. Yeah, I I mean, I I very much agree with Jake and particularly on the point of, um, I guess, always pointing the finger outside uh, of our own backyard and there are a number of instances, in, especially in the Australian context, that I can cast my mind to thinking about sort of the the overreach uh, of the Australian government, um, you know, even things such as raids on the ABC and Annika Smythurst and journalists, press freedoms and uh, and so forth, using these similar types of surveillance um, powers, the potential, uh, I think, through technology such as facial recognition uh, and its use in protest or or to identify people protesting, although that may become slightly more difficult, at least in Victoria, with the requirements to wear uh, masks in in public places. Um, I think also just on the point in terms of uh, the the Jake's comment about sort of the platforms and their involvement, um, not only in, you know, areas such as smart cities development, we saw that, for example, with Sidewalk sidewalk Labs uh, in Canada trying to really uh, cement its kind of um, position through the provision of uh, smart city environments, uh, but also things in relation to sort of the the Apple-Google framework for contact tracing uh, uh, in terms of coronavirus uh, developments. And really the, these kind of attempts by these uh, private uh, entities um, through the provision of these sorts of systems and services, um, expanding and cementing their own infrastructural power in a number of ways. 
in, in ways that makes it in, incredibly difficult to regulate um, across jurisdictions, um, and, and I just think the complexity uh, of it. And so it becomes an issue, I think, less about privacy. Privacy obviously is, is important, but I think that there are broader, broader structural questions, uh, as Jake indicated as well. I guess just coming back to uh, what we were speaking about, well, what Jake was speaking about earlier um, around sort of social Darwinism and, and um, history that biometrics development is, is based on. I was thinking when you were speaking about social Darwinism, you know, the biggest example for like was eugenics. Um, some of these artificial intelligence systems, um, we know that they have a lot of encoded racial bias because the initial data sets are racially skewed. The Google car, one of the car um, automated machine learning cars, um, uh, weren't recognizing people with darker skin tones or black skin tones, and therefore could potentially could end up, you know, running over someone who's black because they wouldn't recognize them as a person. So I guess could you tell us a little bit more about that, or some maybe um, if you want to speak to the more broader structural issues around these systems, which could lean lead to like significant concerns, especially around policing uh, black and brown communities. So I, I, like, I'll just um, chime in here. The, you know, there are well-recognised issues of, of bias, uh, specifically racial bias, not only in sort of the construction of these algorithms, but also even the data sets from which they're, they're being applied to. So, for example, in the US, um, you know, a report called the Perpetual Lineup um, indicated that, you know, people of colour were overrepresented in police databases. So you get this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. In some instances, we see that same argument being used in predictive policing contexts as well. However, I would just caution that, I mean, this focus on, you know, opening up the black box and tweaking uh, algorithms or tweaking these surveillance systems um, to improve them, to optimise them, um, to remove all error or bias uh, potentially operates as an argument to construct a perfect surveillance system. Um, and, you know, this argument's been made by uh, Julia Powers and Helen Nissenbaum in a, a Medium blog post that they put out a couple of years ago in 2018. Um, this kind of arguments for optimization, I think we should be very, very careful about. Uh, and rather, I think, questioning, you know, what type of society do we want to live in? What, what's the role of technology in that? Uh, should we be building perfect surveillance systems free of all error and bias? I mean, I think that, that there's another a, a critical angle one could take. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's, it's perfectly clear that these systems can be harmful when they don't work and can be harmful when they work. And so... Um, Pushing everyone to focus on this question of bias is actually uh, pushing everyone to focus on a particular question that the tech companies actually can deal with, right? If if they if bias is the problem of this, right, then let's let's build these intellectual disciplines about debiasing artificial intelligence and machine learning, and then we've like solved the problem. We've solved the ethical problem, which is not really the case. Um, to go back to this question of eugenics, I mean, a lot of people talk about how machine learning operates as a bit of like a, a smokescreen to launder some of these more objectionable philosophies. And I think that's um, unquestionably true. Uh, I think that we, we probably shouldn't be surprised when some of these 
philosophies poke their heads up again because I think um, they never really go away, uh, as we can see around the world, like these ideas about um, essential characteristics and like biological fatalism never really disappear. There are some really interesting like historical dimensions to this. For instance, you talk about eugenics. Uh, the sort of godfather of English eugenics was um, this figure, Sir Francis Galton. Um, he was also the, um, the person who developed the idea of statistical correlation, which is so fundamental to how machine learning works now. He also um, performed these series of experiments uh, very shortly after the, the photographic daguerreotype process was perfected. He, he very quickly um, conducted these series of experiments of um, trying to use portraits of criminals to construct like an, a mean or average image of criminality. And so this, this, these, these histories of, of statistics, of image making, of different types of technologies, of um, effectively, you know, racism uh, and, and social Darwinism have, have always been tied up. And it's not just a historical feature. It's something that persists in how these technologies work because coming out of Galton's work were these ideas in criminology that the most effective thing to do is to target dangerous individuals. Mm-hmm. And that is the fundamental premise of all machine learning risk assessment now right, is that we need to identify the particularly dangerous individuals. That's what Rand Corporation was working on all through the 20th century, um, and that's what we have now in risk assessment. So it's not um, like a historical curio. This is like the ideological basis of the technology. There was a really interesting installation at Melbourne Uni a couple of years ago that tried to, I think, illustrate this um, called the biometric mirror where you would stand in front of a a camera and it would identify certain attributes about you inferred from your facial characteristics and it really it does throw back to sort of the ideas around phrenology and so forth that have been so widely discredited Um, but I think really highlights you know some of those points. Yeah, I mean, just because they're discredited doesn't mean, like, they're not used anymore, you know? <laughs> like, um, so many examples of that. Um, but I guess just I mean, to, sorry, like, that, that's actually a really important point, is that just because physiognomy and, and phrenology were discredited, it doesn't mean they, cha- they didn't change the way we do science. Because all of a sudden, uh, instead of, like, having a theological explanation for human behaviour, like a metaphysical idea of this person is fundamentally bad, we started trying to like measure things yeah. and draw conclusions from those measurements, even though it turns out what they were measuring and drawing conclusions from were totally wrong. This, this, this positivist premise has become fundamental to all these kinds of analytics. And, and now we've just like taken this, this positivist idea that we can like measure the world and, and the, 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 the more sensitive our measurement, the better the conclusion we can draw out of it is like precisely what's happening with these kinds of video analytics and audio analytics and personality computation that like these systems can know more about the world than have better access to the real, you know, the otherwise unperceptible dimensions of existence than humans are capable of having. Combined with sort of the ideas of biological determinism as well. I guess just like on concluding points, um, 
did you want to talk about um, digital colonialism? Or well, I guess we kind of talked about that, but more about like data sovereignty. You know, meanings when we start to think of sovereignty in, in the context of the digital, there are a number of different meanings. And so there's the work of Indigenous data sovereignty and scholars who have very much been um, advancing those agendas. There's also ideas around um, sovereignty in perhaps the more sort of jurisdictional sense about where data is actually stored and how states can access that, which is becoming increasingly significant in an interconnected global world. Um, so thinking about that in terms of geographic sovereignty. And then there's also issues or kind of questions around technological sovereignty, around individual autonomy and empowerment at an individual level or perhaps even at a, at a community level. So I think we have to be a bit clearer, again, having that precision and nuance about kind of well, in, what, in what application or in what way are we talking about concepts such as, uh, such as sovereignty. Um, but I think they all kind of go to the, to in some ways, you know, speak to sort of, how can, how can individuals or communities or groups or even sovereign nations um, assert certain kind of control or protections over uh, information um, or the applications of technology uh, against them or for them, perhaps? Uh, I, I guess ending on a positive note, what do, we do all of, what do we do about this? Can we advance forms of data or technological sovereignty? How do we go about that? Do we go about that through protections such as human rights, frameworks that are enforceable, that are robust, regulatory protections, conversations in the community about what type of society you want to live in, the role of technology within it? Or like protesters in Hong Kong, do we just tear down smart lampposts? I mean, that was an excellent summary of the issues and I, and, I, and I'm not sure that we can talk more about you know data sovereignty without really thinking about these incredibly complex geopolitical um, issues where we have like a whole bunch of nations saying we need to control the telecommunications and data processing infrastructures of our country and on the other hand you have Google and the US saying no data needs to flow freely uh, which is, you know, this really ideological smokescreen for their, for their business model. Um, so data sovereignty is an incredibly complicated thing and does tie into these questions of, you know, data colonialism, which is about effectively extracting the data of another nation so that you can value add or you can, you can extract surplus from it through uh, value adding data processing chains that occur in your home nation or in your home jurisdiction or however you want to call it. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly complicated. We're seeing it play out with all this TikTok stuff in the, in the U S at the moment. And, um, who knows, but, you know, I always sort of take the view that, um, whereas human rights frameworks maybe, uh, amplify the rights of the individual, maybe what we need to be doing is building new forms of collectivity where we can sort of take advantage of like the information processing power of collectives and collective infrastructures to give um, these groups more power as in, in, in the sort of digital environment in the digital economy. Um, but the shape of those collectives is, is something that lots of people are working on and is hard to sort of describe at this point. 
Thank you so much for joining us. That was a conversation with Dr. Monique Mann and Dr. Jake Goldenfein, who joined us to discuss facial recognition in Australia. And uh, that is all we have time for today on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thank you for joining us this morning. Um, and here's a bit of a quick rundown. So first of all, we heard a conversation that I had with Marisol Salinas, host on 3CRs for Herder's Latino Americanas show. And she joined me to speak about Mapuche political prisoners, Mapuche resistance, and also the upcoming referendum in Chile. And then we heard some poetry from Eileen Chong, and she's a poet based in Sydney. And today you would have heard four poems, three shorter poems from her forthcoming book, and one longer poem in five parts from Rainforest. And then lastly, we just heard an epic conversation uh, where Shaharazad uh, conversed with Dr. Monique Mann and Dr. Jake Goldenfine, uh, to d- and they discussed facial recognition and regulating biometrics in Australia. And um, just to plug it again, um, for people wanting to find out more information about the conflict going on in Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh, uh, which I mentioned at the start of the show, you can go to helparmenians.carrd.co or bit.ly forward slash A-R-T-S-A-K-H dash solidarity um, to find out more information about this live issue and the war that's going on uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan in that region. So that's all we've got time for this week. Um, and we're looking forward to bringing you some more uh, interesting, relevant, hot topic current affairs next week. But for now, we'll go to Lost in Science. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.